1: Welcome to this episode of Money Tales. My name is Cammie Doder and I'm here with my colleague, Sandy Brager.
2: Hi there, this is Sandy. What makes this episode so special to us is that we recorded it as a mock trial run with Cammie's husband, Roland Savage. Our original intention was not to use the interview, but we found Roland's Money Tales to be so insightful and wise that we couldn't let this interview sit on the shelf.
1: Let me tell you a little bit something about Roland. He started his career journey in computer science, has been a venture capitalist, He's enjoyed two stints as an entrepreneur, and he spent some time in corporate M&A. He's now writing his first book. During this discussion, Roland shares stories of his childhood in Belfast, Ireland, his move to the U.S. to go to business school, and how those and his other life adventures, including marrying me, have been influenced by his own experiences and messaging from his father about money.
2: We hope you enjoy this special interview with Roland Savage.
1: So welcome, welcome Roland. Thank you, Cammy. Would you say your name and where you're calling in from?
3: My name is Roland Savage. I've most recently been the CEO of Genchi. I'm a small uh, SaaS startup, and I'm calling in from Mill Valley, in sunny California.
1: Fantastic, good to have you. So let's get started, Sandy. I think you and I haven't orchestrated this. Sandy, why don't you get us started?
3: Yeah,
2: Roland, welcome to Money Tales. We're so excited you're here. The whole goal of our podcast is to engage interesting people like you in conversations about life and money. And what we thought we would do is start by asking you to just give us a summary of, of the journey of your life so far. What are some of the key pivotal moments that have occurred in your life that bring you
3: to this moment? Probably give, take me 47 years to tell you the whole story, but I'm from Belfast in Northern Ireland. I'm born and bred and a software guy and did a computer science undergrad. And then I first came over to the States in 2000 to do my MBA at the University of Chicago. So that was one of my very pivotal events to just that experience, a whole new world other than the software world I was used to. Um, I traveled a lot previously, so I lived in London, the Channel Islands, Estonia, Malaysia. And um, I was in Chicago for about five years before going back to Belfast to do my first startup. Um, which is probably an, the next pivotal moment, which was a, a pricing and an ordering system for independent pharmacies, which uh, unfortunately failed. Um, there's probably, you know, lots of rich lessons learned there. And then after another two years in London, and I came ten years ago. I came to San Francisco, um, and there I met my wife, which I should quickly flag as a pivotal moment. That's <laughs> very important. And I've done a couple of things uh, professionally. So as a software guy originally, I've done two stints with early stage venture funds, one in Chicago and one in London. Most recently, I was a uh, director of corporate development for Atlassian, which is an Australian software company. Uh, I was there for four years, two years before their IPO, two years after. And um, I did six deals while I was there. So got a good appreciation for the M&A process in the software space. And I'm actually currently writing a book to give startups better visibility into that process and how they might manage that. So that's a brief summary. I don't know if that gives you what you're after. You yeah, kind of busy life, Roland. I also this have so children. That's why I'm exhausted. Yeah, <laughs>
2: <laughs> the truth comes out. Well, thank you for that overview. Let's focus on your childhood. I think this is so fascinating. Um, what was it like growing up in Belfast?
3: You know, I kind of had an interesting childhood. So I grew up in Belfast during the the Troubles, as they were known. So it was a 20, 30-year period of civil unrest. So Northern Ireland is part of the UK, but that claim is somewhat contested by the the Republic of Ireland. So I grew up um, in a large family. My dad was a teacher. My mom was a nurse, two brothers, two sisters. But yeah, there was troops on the streets while I was growing up, and Periodic was it the weather report? The weather's going to be rainy with sporadic outbreaks of terrorism. So, I was talking to someone earlier. It's surprising what what feels normal to people, though. So, when I was a child, I was told the military helicopter that was shining the searchlight in the winter that was Santa's helicopter, and he was checking to make sure that the little boys were were safely in bed.
2: Oh wow! Did
3: you ever watch Jersey Girls? Girls? No, Jersey Girls is just it, and I would have been about their age in the time period that that was set. Oh. it's, it's very funny. Is that
2: right? Oh, because yeah, I, I've watched a couple episodes and what you were saying was sort it's of reminiscent fun. of some of the humor in there. Indeed.
3: Yeah, it's just that the people, you know, there's a massive bomb on the bridge and people are, are upset because it's making them late for work. You know, that's, the, that's sort of very much the attitude we had while we were there.
2: Tell us about how money was handled in your household growing up.
3: You know, i was trying to think of, of the right word, frugal feels a more unkind word than it was. So with uh, both parents worked, but five kids growing up in Northern Ireland in the, in the 70s and 80s. So my dad was very careful. He did not like to be in debt. And he talked about how quickly he paid off his mortgage. So every spare penny he got went on to pay off his mortgage. But growing up, I remember things like we would have shopped in two different supermarkets just because beans were cheaper in one and <laughs> pasta's cheaper in another. I think I was just running a household in that place at that time. One thing my father was happy to spend money on was travel. So as kids, we did travel to other cities in the UK, whether that's London and Edinburgh, and we had an aunt in uh, France that we went to see. So even that's fun to think of. Imagine showing up with four kids, three or four kids at a time, to my aunt who lived in a studio apartment and staying for a week. Yeah, these were crazy, weren't they?
1: That's great. Roland, did you all talk about money at all? Like, was it a conversation that came up?
3: My dad's classic line was, keep your money in your pocket. They're all out to get you. Anything to do with money was typically regarded as a scam and someone out to hoodwink them. But my parents lived in a golden age. So both of them retired comfortably on their pensions, which probably won't happen now with teachers or nurses. And they owned their house and it was a nice house in the suburbs. I mean, I feel there wasn't the delta between the, what do they call the income gap that there is in the, in the world today. I mean, that's again, the symptom of, of being in a small town in Northwest Europe, you know, the best house in the city and the worst house in the city aren't that different. But yeah, it was more one about it. You should always save, you know, and be careful with your money. That kind of would have been the lessons.
1: And spending on travel, was that a Maybe say more about that. Was that your dad? Was that sort of the family?
3: So my dad was born, so think Angela's ashes. So he was born in the 30s in Belfast. And again, not people starving. My grandfather wasn't an alcoholic, you know, and they were from a stable house, but they had four kids growing up and the kids were running around Burford at that time. It was just an interesting time to grow up. But he mentioned, he, he dropped out of school to start working at 16. Your dad did? And my dad did, yeah. And my dad mentioned the first trip he took. So I have an aunt who traveled. Uh, so back in the '60s, she worked as a secretary in, in, in Italy, and that is very exotic for Belfast um, of that era. She must have had a little more get-up and go than most people. So she sought out some person living in Belfast that spoke Italian and self-taught herself Italian at that time, and you know, while learning the you know shorthand typing and things like that. But my dad describes taking a trip i think it was the london and how he grumbled at the price he was paying and the way he told it to me is i could have bought a nice new shirt for the fancy shirts. i'm I'm thinking staying alive era you know (laughs) or going out with his pals but instead he went to london and the thing was he felt that changed him that opened up his horizons he saw a world beyond the world he was used to And he said then he didn't want his kids to be in their twenties or whatever it was before they traveled. And he didn't want us to be afraid of travel that the way he must have been at the time going to a big city. That probably would have been quite a leap. Pre-internet days, pre-television show days, pre-all of this stuff days. So um, it's quite a a thing to think about.
2: That's very cool. It's not uncommon for us to hear when we talk with clients about these money messages that are imprinted on us when we're young. Usually there are things like what you mentioned that, that your dad would repeat to you about keeping money in your pocket. And I'm wondering, Roland, how has that played out in your life? What sort of mark, if any, did that make on your own decisions as you grew up and started to make your own money decisions?
3: It's funny. It's always there. I would say it's sort of a, a cornerstone. As I've told Cami, I've also I've taken a lot more risk than my parents did and than my dad did. It was funny. Before he passed away, I, I was in a car with him and we were talking about, it was actually when I was going to business school, and I was bracing for this conversation where I was telling him that I was leaving my good job as he would have seen it in Belfast as a young man earning a good salary, my own department at that time. And I was leaving all that to go back to college, which at that time was kind of seen like a bit of a goof. So I have two of my, both my sisters and one of my brothers have PhDs. And rather that being something that's highly regarded was kind of seen as people who didn't want to get a job. So they stay in education, which is a a weird dynamic. But I remember my dad saying that at that time, I was braced for him to, to buff back against that and tell me I was better staying my job and working and saving my money and those things. And he just said, you kids are living in a different world than I am. And you seem to be making, the, the decisions you're making seem to be the right ones. So if you think that's the right thing, and more importantly that my eldest brother also endorsed the, uh, the idea, then it's, it was probably a good step. And you could have knocked me over with the feather. You know. It was not the conversation I was expecting. And I should also point out, I'm the last of five. So I think he got ground on over the, over the 20 years in between of, <laughs> of, of things. So I would say I feel the lessons are, are there and I feel I've suffered sometimes when I haven't listened from them. But I also do feel there's, I'm not a school teacher and I'm not the pension set up and the, you know, he owned his house by the time he was in his 30s. That world's changed. So my actions need to change a little bit.
1: I'm kind of curious about, what was driving you at that time? Was it a, you're going off to business school because for what reason? Was it given from, as you've grown up, is it pursuit of knowledge, which is obviously a family trait? Is it pursuit of, you know, that lucrative career? What was, what was driving some of those?
3: Pursuit of university life seems to be the family trait. I don't know if if it's the knowledge. You know, not satisfied. So I worry there's a sense in me sometimes not to be satisfied with where I am. And I've had good jobs and you do them for a year or two. And I feel like I've learned, I know what I'm doing, you know, it's time to move on. And I think that restlessness can be a tremendous asset. And it also can be a liability too. It's um, like most things in life, there's a balance there. So I was doing well in my job as a 26 year old. So I was a project manager. I was in Belfast making decent money for Belfast but I just wasn't satisfied. I couldn't see where, where the road led from there, other than to keep doing what I was doing for the next 10 years. Um, and indeed, my colleagues, you know, I have colleagues still working at that same company, probably at that same desk, who did just that. And that didn't satisfy me. And so I wanted something else. And my elder brother, who spent a lot of time in academia, so as well as his PhD, he's got an MBA and a master's in finance. And you know, I think he was doing a BA whenever they they kicked them out of the free free education they have back home but he said an MBA would, op- would open up my you know broaden your horizons and, and open up the opportunities and I, I, the more I read about it the more I thought it sounded cool but I didn't really know what I was getting into until I got there and then of course I was very lucky for the, the time the program I got into the time I got into that program and I was just with a lot of very smart young people who were driven. And it was very different than Belfast, where a lot of people were just content to do what they were doing. And I just loved it. That was possibly, you know, the best two years before meeting my wife.
2: <laughs> and that was 2008?
3: That was 2000.
2: Oh, 2002. 2000. Got
3: it. 20 years ago. Ouch.
2: Wow. And how did you choose University of Chicago?
3: You know, I got waitlisted in Stanford and I got turned on from Harvard. So that's how I ended up in Chicago. <laughs> but
2: you knew you wanted to get out to, to business school in the U.S.? That's
3: a good question. So there is business school in Europe, INSEAD, LBS, Imperial College, but it, it is an American discipline. And even those probably would make the top 10 schools in the list in the U.S. So then if you're going to go to the business schools in the U.S., there kind of is a, a top five ranking. So, you know, if I do all of them, and Chicago was the one I get into, and I don't know if I'm retconning what happened with my preferences, but I actually think I fit a lot better into the city. I fit a lot better into the university and, and with the folks I met than I think I would have gone to Harvard or, or Stanford if I had got into either. So I don't know if I would be saying the same thing if I had to be, get into either of those colleges. But just I was very, I was very very happy with my city. You know, and Chicago still is a very Special place in my heart. I, you know, I consider that my hometown, USA. Is
2: that right? Yeah. What did you love about Chicago?
3: You know, so Chicago was the easiest transition for someone from Belfast because it sort of always felt to me like the type of town Belfast could have been if we didn't have the troubles and it had have grown. So it's a blue collar town. It's uh, about a third of the people are Irish, about a third of them are Polish, and about a third of them are of German extraction in the city. It's just. If I had have come to San Francisco and gone to Stanford, I think I would have had an enjoyable two years, but the culture shock would have been too much and I I would have gone back home afterwards. Whereas, same thing in the East Coast. Again, it's a different culture, but I think it would have been harder for me to fit into. Whereas in Chicago, it kind of felt like it was a change, but a manageable change. And then once I'd kind of decompressed there, it was easier to come out to the, the West Coast when I was more Americanized.
1: I have a question. You mentioned buying a place in Belfast. What drove that? Why was owning property an important thing to you, important thing for your family, kind of like why did you want to own versus rent or
3: Yeah, that's a good question. So, I spent the first 3 years of my career more or less on site doing work and as a result I, it worked out well financially because I was my expenses were paid I'd live in a hotel or or an apartment and I was given a per diem so you know I was able to basically bank my first 3 years salary so then at home where we were growing up the idea of renting was kind of considered wasted money so you stayed at home until you were able to buy and that was kind of the thing my folks did for us is you always had a home to go to and what happened with one of my brothers and one of my sisters is they got jobs and they lived at home for the first year and that gave them the, the ability to have a deposit then to go off and buy their apartments. and Then they were on the, the housing chain. So it was that sense that it was, if you've got a 30 year mortgage to pay off, it's better to get it started quickly and pay off as much of it as, as, as possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So th- there was that sense. It was better to own.
1: Were your friends doing that at that time? No,
3: no. no. it, it, it gave just a difference in America. I it's probably more equivalent, more equivalent to what it is today, but People generally weren't pulling that sort of money together until they were closer to the, you know, they're in their thirties and mm-hmm. their career had moved on. And then it was harder for the people that that came from, you know, in Northern Ireland there's a split between the city folks and the the country folks. So anyone that came in from the country, then they needed to have an apartment, then they would share houses or, or do the things people do here, of course. But it's very hard if you're paying your money out in rent and you know, everything each month, how do you get ahead to get the money to buy the apartment? And even that, I have to say, in Belfast has changed tremendously in the last 20 years. There really weren't that many apartments in Belfast because the way it worked was you kind of lived at home until you got married and then you bought a house. house. So there were more at that time. But my brother, who's seven or eight years ahead of me, kind of the first that generation of the, you know, getting a bachelor pad and having that sort of five years where you'd live by yourself. It's funny how much I think about it now, how much has changed.
2: What did you end up doing with that place? Do you still own it? You know,
3: I, I kept it. No, ultimately I sold it to pay for my business school education. And actually that then formed the deposit of my place. I, I bought a condo in Chicago then after business school. And so that was... Uh, tell
2: us what that all felt like. Because those are pretty big moves, Roland. Have a place that
3: you own, sell it. Yeah, for I, it's... School. It's funny, I was very happy to get the place in Belfast. It was a very, very nice apartment. I think I've sh- shown Cami where it is, but it was in, near the university area. In the winter, you could see the lag on the river that runs through Belfast. It was a very pleasant apartment, but I was only there for a year and a half before I got that wanderlust. I went to Chicago, so I had this beautiful apartment that I wasn't using, and I was able to rent it for most of the time, but then I had a period of time where I didn't have a tenant, and I'm paying the mortgage, and that's not a great feeling. Now, right around then was right before the property exploded in Belfast. So, if I had held on for an extra twelve or eighteen months, I probably would have made twice as much money. But I didn't, you know. So I didn't know what was happening at that time. So then I bought the place in Chicago. So I thought that was a good, again, getting a leg up. So I'm owning and I'm paying, rather than paying a rent or paying a mortgage, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And but then after a couple of years in Chicago, it is, I decided to move on. And then it was like, oh, that was more of a. I actually would have been better renting. And I never considered that. I've recently just read the book the Hillbilly Elegy*. Mm-hmm. And he talks in that a little bit about homeownership as an anchor, as a burden. People buy houses in these areas, and then the industry moves away, and then the housing price goes down, so they can't sell and they're best in that. I never thought about that before. It was always an asset. It was always a positive thing to have that you were if you were property. Then, I, I mean, there's, there's there's an Irish component in there. I mean, the ownership of property was seen as been very very important back. You know, going back to the famine um, days, that was important. But the interesting thing was I made money on my Belfast sale. I lost money on the Chicago sale, but I was lucky to get out because then the crash of 2070 had happened. So I could have lost my ass. I was lucky getting out, but losing a little bit.
2: Do you remember what it felt like at the time, though, when you were losing money on it?
3: Yeah, it was, it was, it was anxious. Some things you can't do anything about can't borrow trouble. Don't can't borrow worry. But it, it's not a nice feeling. It's not a nice feeling to have things you know and you you can't affect. It's frustrating. As King Canoe tried to turn back the tide. You know you can't you can't. I was selling the property and I had someone in to sell the property and it didn't. I couldn't think of what else to do. So to change the situation.
2: So you're done with graduate school. You're done with Chicago. What's going through your mind? Where's your your focus?
3: So uh, West Coast. So again, it was uh, professionally, I'd I'd come to a crossroads. So i worked for a venture fund. And the way the venture fund world works is you're an associate for two or three years. And then some larger funds will have a track to get on the partner. But for smaller funds, and I was part of a smaller fund, you tend to go out and do something else for five or 10 years and then find your way back as a partner that way. So I had this great startup idea working with my cousin actually back in Northern Ireland. So I decided to, to do that. I actually came out to San Francisco for about six months to, to build the system and then went back to Northern Ireland to, um, the, the opportunity was based around that, how the healthcare system is set up in the UK. So that's really where the opportunity was. What was going through my mind there was, it's easy to picture success. It's easy to think I'll do this because I want to be a successful entrepreneur. That would be a good way to go back into the venture world as, hey, I was an associate for three years, and I spent five years as an entrepreneur, and then I went back in. And Of course, it doesn't always work quite that smoothly.
2: How would you have defined success at that time in your life? What did it look like to you?
3: Yeah, I, I think if I to be my own boss, to be able to derive an equivalent salary that I would have been paid by someone, but through my own efforts, through the product I was building. That's where I, I wasn't focused on the you know make ten million dollars on a on a big IPO. Really, it was generate something. But success, actually, I, I should say this was more than financial. It was more that I'd done it, that I had created. So that, in my mind, is a form of alchemy. So you've taken an idea and you've turned it into something that people will, will pay money for. That's spinning straw into gold. That's a cool thing, uh, but it's also a very hard thing. <laughs> that's that's I get it. That's where the gray hairs come from. <laughs> the uh, it's not the it's not the easiest approach.
1: Is it one of those things where you're thinking about what you're most passionate about, and then you also then have to create real life? Like you've, you're really excited about your passion, but then you got to now bring it to life. Was that something that drove some of these decisions that you you're, you're going to go make alchemy, do something that so many people that you grew up with maybe weren't doing? They were, you referenced they were at jobs, they were staying at jobs?
3: Let me answer that question indirectly if I can. So I, I was partnered with a cousin of mine and my cousins were next door to us in our Irish Catholic things. And there was five of them as well, you know, so there's a lot of cross-pollination. So ultimately this cousin was my best man at my wedding and, and vice versa. So we're very good friends, but he's a pharmacist and he's an entrepreneurial. So he, he bought a pharmacy shop and has done quite well in Belfast not just in Belfast terms and in, in everyone else's terms as well. But I remember him visiting me in Chicago and we were with a bunch of my business school friends. So think of very, very smart bankers and consultants and venture and just all the, you know, who have just come out of the you know, University of Chicago MBA. And he was talking about one of the things he was doing in terms of buying and selling drugs. And all of the people around them told him why that doesn't work and how the market's going to correct and how there's no such thing as arbitrage and how these things are, someone, a competitor will come in and all the book learning stuff we had. And we were, we were having beers and he's just laughing. He says, yeah, they're all, in the meantime, I'm making whatever it was, 30 grand a month doing this. <laughs> and I just had this epiphany of we're all too smart. We're all thinking of all the, there's actual, there's just practicalities with, you know, looking at real world, world things. Cammy and I talk about the, it's the the concept of the the business that sells ribbons. I knew someone that sold batteries. One of my iterations, I lived in on Jersey, which is one of the Channel Islands. So it's a small island. It's nine miles by five miles. But he was the one that had the contract. Everyone bought their batteries off him. It's not an exciting business, but very good life for that one person who had it. So there's these people that have these great lifestyle businesses doing things you would never think of, but yet actually make good money and have a lot of respect for people that find a little category and, and kind of want it and execute with it.
1: Tell me about working with your cousin. And since this is money tales, did you talk about the financials? Was it something that just- Not
3: enough. We screwed that up, I think. It was more a handshake agreement, which is a very Belfast way of handling it. And the sense that there's no way we would ever try to screw each other it meant we didn't really need to have the conversation. But in hindsight, that was naive. We should have set out the budgets. Because again, there was a naivete for how long it would take and how much effort it would take. And then what would happen if it didn't work? And it was just this presumption that it would. you know, And that's the suspension of disbelief, which is, is also both a curse and an asset, depending on, on, on what it's used for. So I bankrolled a lot of the development and then he bankrolled a lot of development. But then it got to be awkward at some point that we didn't have a set, hey, we're both going to invest this amount of money. Hey, we're both going to dedicate this amount of time. Hey, we're, and some things evolved over time. So it's not something I would advise people now to kind of sit down have the hard conversation, you know, and write that stuff down because people's memories shift over time as well.
1: That's that's great. I like that. Um,
2: Very interesting points. As you kind of look at life now, Roland, with all these really rich, no pun intended for money tales listeners, <laughs> experiences, what are some of your key learnings? What do you wish you had known when you were a younger man, just getting started in your career before you even thought about business
3: school? You know, Sandy, I've taught, Cammy's familiar with, with this conversation, and it's, it's a really hard question to answer because your life's a tapestry, right? So if you pull one thread, and you say, oh, I wish I hadn't done that thing. I wish I had done the other thing. Then that might change everything. and Not necessarily for the better. So in some senses, I could say, I wish I didn't sell the apartment at Belfast and had waited because then I would have made, you know, there's an extra couple hundred grand would have come into the coffers. That would have been nice. I probably, knowing myself, would have rolled it forward into another. So my relationship with property is I made a lot of money on one. And I lost a lot of money in, on each other. And I think I'm a little bit ahead, but. It's enough to have a healthy respect for the market and it's a highly leveraged asset and you should acknowledge that as such. It's the same thing with my startup. My first startup was a failure. I'm reluctant to use that. It certainly knocked me, it was a punch, knocked me to the mat and actually took a while to, to bounce back from. But is that feeding me now? Is that pushing me forward? Is that why I'm in San Francisco? I honestly don't know the answer to this. There's some parts of me think of what if I just had a computer programmer? I'd probably make, especially if I came out here, I'd probably be making the same amount of money as a, you know, an MBA done all these other things. But I don't know if I've been satisfied. I think the one word I use most of all, I think, is balance. I don't think there's a right answer. I don't think my dad's 100% right. Keep your money in the safest place possible and don't take risks and, and things like that. On the other hand, I think I, I've overcompensated for that and gone way out on the other side which is also a mistake. So there's a balance point in there. and There's a balance point within couples. You got to find that yin and yang that works for you. It's hard to experience... What does they say that you make bad decisions, you get experience from making bad decisions. And the only way you can make fewer bad decisions is by having, you know, experience. So it's a a virtuous circle.
2: That's a good point. I want to ask a question about the conversations you have with your friends. It sounds like you have a very healthy friend network, certainly at the the story you told about business school and, and taking the academic approach to your cousins. It was quite fun. Do you spend time talking with your friends about money? And if so, how does that come up and what sorts of things do you talk about?
3: That's a really good question. I think we're still of a generation where to talk of months is vulgar, but we're, for my MBA friends, you're kind of deal oriented. So if someone sold, been a part of an exit or a liquidity event, or a, that would be acknowledged. Not so much a tell us what he got or what she got, but more of he's done well. Cami, you were actually part of one of those conversations when Donna visited. And it, it was awesome because it was genuinely feeling, you know, you're, the theme, someone scored a goal on the team and you're applauding them. And I also have friends, our, we graduated in 2002 right when the bust happened. So we rolled out into a very tough market and then people were just climbing up and then got clobbered by 2008. And then you know, we've just been clobbered again. So our class has not been the class of easy sailing. I'm interested to see it at our 20-year reunion how many people will have done very well? Because <laughs> I think I feel there's a lot of struggle for reasons beyond their just lack of effort and intelligence. It's been a dynamic 20 years. So we do talk about it. People would ask. I saw right at the start of COVID, for example, one of the Slack groups were part of. People were saying, how much cash do you have on hand? What are you doing with your investments? What are people doing? So that level of that came out. The guys I'm most friendly with are the, the more entrepreneurial-minded. And that tends to be kind of binary outcomes. or either limping or suddenly you're in clover. That tends to get rolled forward into the next thing as well. So it's an interesting group, but it's a, I don't know that we're the healthiest of the healthiest money talks conversations. You should subscribe to this podcast, I suspect.
1: So do you, do you actually talk about investments with them or are you guys more on the
3: higher level? We do. I mean, nobody's saying you should buy gold. Yeah, that's not true. We, yeah, we would talk about investments. I mentioned my, my friend Larry. I mean, he was the one that gold or uh, oil was underpriced. And he's like, I don't want to tell you, but I'm mortgaging my house to invest in this. He was both right and wrong. <laughs> mostly wrong, but yeah. So people would have very specific recommendations, but I mean, we all, we also have the education to know the passive interest trackers or for your, you know, where your money should go and have a well-balanced portfolio. And stop and silly. Think of another friend, Kami Jake who thinks that they're the day trader that are making money. And that's um, my, my group of friends wouldn't consider that prudent investing.
1: Mm-hmm. And what would be, if you had to guess when they think about success, what would that group think about success? Is it a financial number? Is it a, is it a business?
3: So I think many of us are married and have kids. So And we're getting older. So I think in the last sort of things have changed where people are thinking very much of being ready for the future and everything that that involves. So I think that is a number. And I think if I ask any of them, they would have the number that they need to, need to get to in order to take away any anxiety they have. Beyond that, it's more of, the, I guess, score-taking, not as a braggart. It's more that this is the soccer game we're in. This is what we have equipped ourselves to play with all our experiences up to this stage. So we kind of want to show that we're proficient. We're in the stage where this is our time to do. I suspect 10 years from now, it will be a stage of the console, mentor, teach, give back in the way. But right now, this is sort of our prime time. We actually create something. And I know that there, there's pressure for that. And I, I know there there's a number of people that are smart people, hardworking people that have clicking into their place in this changing world. So remember, 2000, uh, 2000 I was the only person with a computer science degree in our uh, MBA class. Wow. Internet email was just about a thing. It wasn't super common. The tech jobs, there was... A dozen people, maybe out of the 400, went out to Silicon Valley, not much more, from the University of Chicago, which is recognized as a very heavily finance oriented The world has changed. No iPhones. We had Pan pilots, and they were just a gadget, a keys thing. The world, there's been a lot of change this last 20 years.
2: So that's kind of interesting as you look forward to the next 20 years, Roland. What's going to satisfy you as you look ahead? Where is your focus?
3: Definitely, sort of the family. When I say that people have a number in mind, there is I have a family, and you know the the future, and there is providing and supporting for them is, is that sort of first and foremost. That's the job that needs to be done. So I suspect success will be on the other when you're older, and just we may not be the generation that we missed the dot com boom, fortunately with the big payouts and the the comfort. But success might just be maintaining a good home and the family life and getting through to retirement, having a comfortable retirement, you know, that's, maybe that's it. I don't know the answer to that. I I know I'm still seeking it. I think that's a good thing, but within reason. I'm also cognizant now that I have marketable skills. And it's not this sense of always wanting to go to the new thing. It's like, oh, I actually got a few things that you put together. And you know, that might be interesting. So hence the the idea of writing that book, I probably would not have done that if we weren't in the COVID and we weren't doing that. But I've realized, first and foremost, I know someone doing M&A at most of the big tech companies. and I, I can talk to them, and I can gather information from them, and I can put that together, and I can string a few words together. Those are things suddenly, when you start adding things up, if you can do this and this and this, then suddenly that starts making your proposition more unique. But the focus for now, especially in the world we're in with the uncertainty, is finding that certainty and the stability. And finding something that's rewarding and makes the world a better place in some fashion. I all of those things.
1: That's wonderful. That is good. I'm curious, what makes you happier? Spending money or saving money?
3: I think saving money, probably. Let me ask that different. I like not having to worry about spending money. But I'm not a buy the $200 bottle of champagne guy nor am I the flashiest car guy nor the so uh, when I think about this in the conversation we've had my dad's definitely left an imprint on me you know I don't need your shirt I'm okay with a shirt I'm thinking of our brother-in-law Cammy, where (laughs) I just like I would have an aversion to that in general but there are things I do value I do I like going out to sushi ran and not blinking you're having a $250 $250 dinner. It's kind of nuts when you think about it. I mean, in <laughs> general, life in the Bay Area gives me anxiety. The, the cost of living, the cost just commuting, and you know, even $17 for a salad for lunch. It's like, that's nuts. Like, that's just nuts.
1: Until we spent time making that salad and we realized, oh, that
3: was priceless to spend Yeah. Money. <laughs> well, there's that too. Yeah. So I, I don't know. I think it's, not, it's, nice to, it's nice to be able to get what you want I think you can be happy on simple things. I think getting a beach coffee is pretty – That's an I feel good in that. I think when it's nice when you go somewhere you get a nice sandwich or something, you know, it's the – you don't necessarily need to go to have a $500 spa day to sort of sit and look at the water and enjoy your lunch.
2: I've been interested to hear your father come up in this conversation so many times. And so I'm wondering, Roland, now that you're a father and you have two beautiful young girls – how do you think about money and the role it plays in your relationship with them and the things you want to teach them?
3: One's worry, so I have you know an obligation to provide, and I don't want to drop I don't want to miss that obligation so that's that's one aspect of that Again, we're in an expensive part of the world and the second is we're in a very affluent part of the world, it's a very different world than the one I grew up on, so I worry also about teaching them the value of money and that they don't expect. I don't want them to be spoiled. And I want them to have the, a healthy relationship with money. Cami and I have talked about that, and it's the sense you make sure they get the summer jobs. How do you make sure they know that if they drop their iPhone, a new iPhone just doesn't magically appear? That's not the world they're in. It's growing up in the appreciation and the gratitude. And I think they'll get that because we do have connections back in Ireland and you know, even to visit the former Yugoslavia. There's a sense of being able to go other places and see that the rest of the world is not like this. I want to do all the things. I want to encourage, empower, enable them, but also not protect them. I want them to make bad decisions and suffer the consequences of those decisions a little bit as well. And that's going to be the hardest thing for and I to do. My mother-in-law has an expression where it's the you got to prepare them for the road, not the road for them. And right now, with a six-year-old and a four-year-old, it's very hard to think of letting them figure some of these things out by themselves. But I know it's the right thing to do.
1: It's interesting. Your dad would travel. That's where he spent his money, as you told us. And it was almost to broaden your horizon, right, and see the potential. And so you were brave. And then you're thinking about travel as a way of, of educating and showing, I'm sure it's broadened horizons, but also the fortune and showing them how different people live and exist.
3: When I think of when I first went to London, I'd never seen wealth on a scale that they have in London that, you know, the houses in Mayfair or some, we just did not have an equivalent. Again, the nicest house and the worst house in Belfast were not, they would be in the same neighborhood in the U.S. So seeing that delta was quite impressive. But more than that, I've lived in different countries with work. And you get an appreciation sometimes. I came from Northern Ireland. The big deal when I was growing up was between Catholic and Protestants. I could tell you that right now over the next hour, and it would bore you all to sleep because you won't care. But if you're in Belfast, you care. So it's travel makes you realize that all... A lot of your problems are localized. A lot of people are dealing with the same things in different ways. And quite frank, in the U.S., I think there's a lot of people who benefit from that and seeing that not all the problems that we have are unique to our current situation or our current time. And and in fact, we were watching talk shows from 40 years ago, and it's amazing that they sound like they're relevant today. And some of the things people are talking about when it comes to taxation or debts or, or stuff like that, you know. So, I think travel is invaluable because it changes you. Just an appreciation for the wider world is is a very useful thing, I think.
2: Well, this has been such a great conversation. I've learned so much. Thank you for sharing with us. I have one last question before we end. If someone gave you a million dollars tomorrow, what would you do?
3: Charge with (laughs) lasers? No, I'd probably be very boring about it. I would probably sink it into a savings account, pay off the mortgage, A million dollars is not what it was. I would be in a situation where having more padding, I would get the most utility from that. Uh, We'd probably have a nice night out, but that would be my thoughts.
2: Yeah. $200 bottle of wine though.
3: There you go. Yeah. (laughs)
2: Awesome.
3: Yeah.
1: This has been great. I was going to ask one more along those lines. If money were no object, so no longer the million dollars, whatever that number is that provide for, what would you most like to do?
3: I worry a bit about that because part of the human condition is to chase, right? It's dealing with adversity. If you take away the adversity, I don't necessarily know you're in a better place. You like to think you are because I work on my poetry. I mean, I, I don't know what I would do. Honestly, I, I think if money was not an object at all, I might go back to school. There's things I'd like to study if I had the time. That might be one thing I'd do. Or just remake uh, my life to optimize time with family and hobbies and you Mm -hmm.
1: know and and, learning
3: yeah but it's funny i would like to be in that situation but i've got a feeling it would be i don't think that anxiety i have would go away because of it right i think there's i need to get back into a chase. your
1: desire for your satisfaction yeah i I
3: mean i think of my mentor tom he started a startup when he was 70 and i don't know it's the smartest thing to do but i suspect he'll be one of those guys that lives till he's 95 and I suspect that's why. So whether he'll live the 95 because he's doing that or because he does that is, means he'll live the 95. I don't know what way, what's cause and effect in that. I just know that that game we were talking about with your friends, it's, I like it with my business school friends because it's very healthy. It's a all we want to do is apply our skills in an effective way. And some of those people are not doing financially well, but they're doing other things, whether they're non or other things. And it's, it's just cool. They're cool people doing cool things, but they're not customers. They're in the middle of this game.
1: I love it. Thank you, Roland. You were a fabulous guest.
3: Well, thank you.
2: Hi, Sandy here with some quick personal finance insights. During the interview, Roland shares two experiences he's had buying and selling homes. The first sale resulted in a gain and the second one in a disappointing loss. We want to break this down for listeners from a U.S. tax law perspective because this can be complicated. Usually when a person buys or sells an investment, they pay tax on the resulting capital gain. And that gain is calculated as the difference between what they paid for the investment and what they sold it for. When a person incurs a capital loss, that's when they sold the investment for less than they paid for it. The loss can be used to offset other capital gains the person has taken that year, effectively lowering their overall tax bill. This is a generous aspect of tax law that allows the taxpayer to squeeze some tax lemonade, that would be the tax savings, from the lemon of the investment. All that said, the tax law treats the sale of a personal residence differently. If you sell a home at a loss, you are not permitted to take the loss. That means that the loss does nothing to lower your tax bill. However, if you sell the house at a gain and you've lived in the house for at least two of the last five tax years, you may be able to exclude up to $250,000 of the gain from taxes if you're single, and you may be able to exclude up to $500,000 of the gain if you're married. Depending upon your tax bracket and if you qualify for the exclusion, this may translate into $37,500 to $50,000 of federal tax savings, or double that if you're married. That's huge. So if you're in the process of selling a home or thinking about it, be sure to check with your financial advisor or tax professional so that you can determine how these rules may apply to your situation.
0: You've been listening to Money Tales, hosted by Sandy Brager and Kami Doder. To subscribe to the show on your favorite platform or to increase your money mojo via their blog, Fathom, head on over to aspirantcom slash podcasts. Thanks, and we'll see you next time on Money Tales.